Hello and welcome to episode 238 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Herbenowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going, Jason. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. You're getting ready to get on a plane, aren't you? I am. I am undeniably excited about this low fare I got because, you know, it's off-peak season for transatlantic travel, but scooped up a mistake fare a couple months ago in basic economy, but I'll survive over to London for the weekend. So that'll be looking forward to that. New York to London, that's like, what, an hour and a half in the air? No more than two hours. Yeah, real quick. It's just a brief nap I won't be able to take. (laughs) Well, enjoy the weekend and I hope the weather cooperates. It won't, but thank you. (laughs) <laughs> Nobody goes to London for the spectacular weather this time of year. Really going to deliver on that promise. If you like shades of gray, then it, it's the way to go. Nailed it. But we begin in London, and this one's a weird one. Yeah. I'm still not really processing what happened here. I don't think anyone is. So a Titan Airways A321neo. Not just A321neo. A very particular, special one. Don't bury the lead. Which one was this? It's not special anymore. Not anymore, but it was. It was special. So I'm getting there. All right. Let's go. Come on. You're stealing my fog or thunder or whatever happens in London. Anyway, moral of the story. A Titan Airways Airbus A321neo that had formerly operated on detachment to the United Kingdom's government, most recently operated on a state visit by King Charles to France, and then it had been taken out of service and retrofit and turned from the United Kingdom government A321 into the fancy pants round the world travel A321. So that was completed. And then they were flying to position the aircraft from London to Orlando. And as they climbed through 10,000 feet, this is UK AIB information coming to us from the French BEA. Quote, in the climb at approximately 10,000 feet, crew noticed excessive cabin noise and aircraft executed to turn back to London Stansted. It was discovered that three windows were missing and loose, and there was damage to the left-hand stabilizer. And that's it. That's all we know. That's all we know. There are no pictures. There is nothing beyond that one sentence. That is all we have from the BEA. The AAIB has posted nothing as far as we can tell, which is really a shame because this is absolutely one of the strangest incidents I have ever heard of, and probably you too, Ian. It's just bizarre. So the unofficial information that has been circulating seems to point to a trio of windows on the left-hand side being the subject of of this investigation. So if there's damage to the left-hand stabilizer, it stands to reason that something happened to the windows, and then those windows hit the left-hand stabilizer as they departed the aircraft. From what it sounds like, because remember, aircraft windows are multiple panes and multiple layers so that there's an inner window, a middle window, and an outer window that gets you know kind of sandwiched in between the, the inner of the fuselage and the, the exterior of the fuselage. And so what it sounds like, based on kind of the unofficial sources, because as Jason pointed out, that this is all the official information we have that comes from the BEA, that, that came to the BEA from the UK AAIB. It sounds like the exterior portion of the window separated, or at least a partial portion of that window separated. And that's what possibly struck the left-hand stabilizer. 
we don't know for sure, but that's what we've got so far. Yeah, very strange that this would have happened not just to one, not just two, but three windows were apparently missing, I guess, departed the aircraft. That is a failure you would never expect to see for one window in the lifetime of the aircraft, let alone three on a single flight. So there was almost certainly some sort of incident with this aircraft. Something would have attributed to this, or maybe there was some manufacturing defect. And I'm sure all relevant parties are going to get to the bottom of this real quick, because there, if there is an actual manufacturing issue with the 321neo, that, that's a big, big deal. We don't know if that's the case. Maybe there was some damage to this aircraft that went unnoticed during the conversion from VIP or VIP to other type of VIP configuration. We don't really know v- what VIP to v- that's VIP. right. V- VIP yeah. to just regular VIP. We don't really know what work went on with this aircraft. All we know, it got a little windy in the cabin, and thankfully there were no passengers on board. This was just crew on a repositioning flight. But it, it's just real funny that crew noticed excessive cabin noise. Yeah, I, I'm assuming it was a little windier <laughs> yeah, in there than usual. But I, I can't help but wonder if this is something that would have been caught before even pushback if this was a passenger flight would have somebody sat down in 14f looked out the window and said huh that's not right there's usually a window there right now it's just a gaping hole we don't know if there were even windows when the aircraft took off we just know that there weren't windows when they got back to what was it stansted yeah back to stansted the interesting thing to me is that a few things have been floated that because the aircraft was in maintenance so it transited from Stansted to Southend on the 23rd of September, and then came back from Southend to Stansted on the 2nd of October and came back just fine. And so a couple of people have suggested, and and we put a blog post together on this, and and in reply to that, they suggested that there was a maintenance issue. Something happened during maintenance, and that led to whatever the problem was. And that very well may be, but I do want to point out that this aircraft did successfully complete not a very long flight, a 20-minute flight, but it completed a flight from Southend back to Stansted. The one interesting thing that, that I will note there, though, is that the highest altitude that the aircraft reached on that first post-conversion back to, I guess, regular VIP or, or out of the UK scheme that flight only went up to 8000 feet so maybe there was an issue where going above you know where the pressurization comes into play i'm not kind of speculating but i'm laying out kind of some of the facts around because this is just so odd to me about you know how this could happen and like jason said it's not just one window it's multiple windows that's kind of i guess where the mystery lies so i'm super interested to find out what happened here the UK AAIB is investigating because it's a UK airline and it happened in the UK. The BEA is a party to the investigation as the investigatory body for the state of manufacture. And we'll see what happens from there. All right, then. Very much looking forward to, I don't know, the BEA or AIAB posting sentence two of this report. I, I'd love to know more. Maybe we get a full paragraph next time. You might even get a picture. That'd be fantastic. Coming back to these United States, we've got Boeing today tossing $100 million at Spirit Aerosystems saying, please get your acts together so that you can send us completed, unadulterated fuselages and components so that we don't have any more of these quality issues and we can just build planes. Excuse me, how much? 
did Boeing give Spirit Aero Systems? They, they didn't send it to him today, but they will give them a no, lump sum in the mail. Yeah. of a hundred, yeah, hundred million dollars. Wow, that's some Doctor Evil level investment. Plus, hundred million. Dollars. Yeah, oh, we're, exactly. not, we're not done. Well, we're not done yet. We, okay, we're not tell done me more. yet. So, this agreement was concluded on the twelfth of October, which comes just a few days after Spirit fired their CEO Tom Gentile and Pat Shanahan took over. So it sounds to me like this may have been in the works for a while, and maybe there was some, you know, some acrimony about what this deal would look like. But the deal includes more than money, but certainly a hundred million dollars is is certainly a big component of it. So the idea here is that the money will help get a lot of tooling and allow for the ramp up of production of the 737 MAX because Boeing wants to increase the rate there and to make sure that the 787 components that Spirit is producing are the way they need to be. The $100 million is immediate investment for capital investment in tooling. Then Boeing will also increase what it pays Spirit for 787 components for a two-year period of $455 million. Then Boeing takes price reductions in later years. So Boeing's basically pushing a bunch of cash at Spirit, and then Spirit will lower the price they charge Boeing in later years to kind of sort of make up for it. But then Spirit also doesn't need to repay cash that Boeing gave it or doesn't need to yet repay cash that Boeing gave it to make it through its financial crisis as, you know, as it was dealing with a lot of these issues. Spirit now gets until February of 2025 to repay the first half of the $180 million it owes Boeing, and then they will be able to split the second half. So the second $90 million gets split into 2026 and 2027. I mean, Spirit has been in a rough financial position for a while. And I'm quoting here from Dominic Gates's really in-depth article in, in Seattle Times. In September, Gentile, then CEO of Spirit Aerosystems, said that the cumulative heavy losses on the 787 program, amounting to a staggering $1.4 billion over the 16 years since the first 787 rolled out in 2007, were not sustainable. You think? Yeah, I agree with that. If that's true, that's outstanding. Does anyone ever make money off the 787? This is just- Apparently the, not. The, the gift that keeps on giving that will never seemingly be profitable. Really is. So the price increase on the next 440 787s, that 440 787 sets that Spirit produces for Boeing, will net Spirit an extra $60 million in this year and then an additional almost $400 million over the next two years. And then they will get paid less for 737 MAX fuselage sets, but those don't kick in until 2026. Basically, Boeing is giving them a $100 million check at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Then they're going to pay them more for the next couple of years and then try and recoup some of that over basically the latter half of the decade. All right. I mean, if you're Spirit, it sounds like a good deal. Like, what is there not to like about that deal yeah. if you're Spirit Aerosystems? Here's an even better thing, as far as I guess Spirit is concerned. This particular agreement also ends all of the legal back and forth about who's responsible for the quality defects. Huh. Okay. 
So this is really just across the board fantastic for Spirit. Like this yeah. seems to solve all of their problems theoretically. I mean, in the near term. So I think there's two arguments here. One, this solves Spirit's problems in the near term and allows them to get their house in order and then you know improve what they need to improve on so that they can be a good partner for Boeing and improve the work that they're doing. Another view one might argue, is that this kicks the can down the road. It does. But also, I think anything that brings Spirit and Boeing closer together to end up in a position where they are, how do I say this nicely, less terrible at the thing that they do is a positive thing. I'm sure Airbus is looking at this also and saying, hey, this is good for us. We get Spirit to improve their processes and be more reliable at outputting what we get from them, and we don't have to put in a dime. So good for them too. The article that Dominic Gates wrote and then, I guess, revised and and added a lot of information to in the two versions that I read, he addresses the fact that there might be a similar deal in the offing between Airbus and Spirit in the interest of Airbus not wanting to also receive lackluster components, I guess. Yeah, because you only really hear about Spirit Aerosystems in the context of screwing up something for Boeing. But Spirit does also do A350 wing spars and fuselages, I believe. And A220 parts as well. And A220 parts. So there you go. Airbus has just as much a hand in this as Boeing does. But Boeing is really, I'm not going to say being proactive about it because we are well past being proactive, but at least they are being, uh, I don't know, taking responsibility for fixing Spirit because it is more than clear at this point that Spirit is not going to fix itself. Yeah. I mean, with Shanahan taking over on an interim basis, who knows for how long, and then this deal, it sounds like things are moving in the right direction or at least could move in the right direction if, if they take this seriously. But I mean, who knows? I mean, it, you know, it's one of those things where every time we think that things are getting better, there's another another setback. So hopefully that, you know, $100 million is nothing to sneeze at. That's for sure. So hopefully that that helps. Let's talk about billions of dollars. And in this case, we're talking about United's third quarter financial results, which they released today, or I suppose last night. So we're recording on Wednesday, the 18th of October, and we get some financial results from United, a quarterly pre-tax income of $1.5 billion dollars. And pre-tax margin of 10.3%. And we're not really a numbers podcast, but thankfully, we don't have to get too far into the weeds because we can just look to United CEO Scott Kirby and his interesting comments. This was posted on LinkedIn by Kirby last night as they released their earnings. And I'm just going to read most of the post because it's it's very interesting to hear from, from Scott Kirby. Quote, the third quarter was another confirmation that United Next, United Next being United's plan for kind of coming out of COVID and where the airline wants to go, quote, is working exactly as we expected, both for United Airlines and for the industry at large. It's pretty remarkable that this quarter, that approximately 98% of the total expected industry revenue growth will come from United and one other airline. Jason, I'll stop there and ask, what's the other airline? I'm going to guess it's Delta, regardless of how much they've pissed off their most loyal customers and backtracked on that today, at least a little bit, going to guess it's Delta. The money is rolling in for them. Kirby continues, and 90% of the total expected industry pre-tax profit 
will come from just those two airlines. Mm, that's a very large number and, and somehow does not account for that third very large, also one of the largest airlines in the world. But he goes on to put a couple other different type of airlines on blast, doesn't he? This is a very interesting post. He continues, quote, for my entire 30-year career, the airline industry has gone through cycles and we are in one now. But all of those cycles have ended with the lowest margin airlines forced to make adjustments, which will lead to better results for United. The adjustments are an inevitable economic reality, and I expect it to happen again by the second half of 2024. What's different this time, however, is that the lowest margin airlines are the so-called low-cost carriers, and that's where I think the changes are going to occur. As a result, United is going to merge in a structurally stronger and sustainable position. The changes ahead are significant and are going to lead to a much better outlook for United's customers, employees, and shareholders. That's an interesting, interesting thing because one of the the leading factors for United's success in the third quarter has been strong international demand. And when we talked about second quarter results, which seems like yesterday, but is months ago now, the main driving factor in the lackluster results for the low-cost carriers was strong international demand, where they don't really have networks. Where during COVID and immediately afterward, they saw incredible, incredible demand just because people wanted to travel again, but they couldn't necessarily fly internationally yet, or it was too onerous to go through all of the you know, medical checklists and, and hoops and things like that for getting tested and all that. But it said, forget it, we'll just go to Florida or we'll just go to Arizona or, or wherever. But now people can fly internationally. And so the low-cost carriers have been, I don't want to say scrambling, but definitely set on a back foot. So it's interesting to see Kirby saying that that's a structural readjustment rather than just something that's going to even out. So I'm interested to hear more from him on what he means by all that. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. We have definitely heard from all of the low-cost carriers that the third quarter has been underwhelming from them, but for them because they their hypothesis is that people are just going where their airlines are not going. And I guess I'm living proof of this too. I'm taking a cheaper trip to Europe than I could get a, a round trip to Florida for to LA even. So it is very interesting. But also, I guess the term low-cost carrier, we, we've known for a long time that a lot of the carriers regarded as a low-cost carrier in the US. It's kind of a, a misnomer. JetBlue is not a low-cost carrier in reality. I don't know. But the comment from Kirby really, really was quite pointed and I, I think I agree with it. I, I don't know. What do you think? I would like to hear more about what he's thinking. And I think to your point, it's also important to figure out what's a low-cost carrier. Because like you said, JetBlue is not a low-cost carrier. Customers of Southwest, I think, would say that they're a low-cost carrier. I don't think anyone else would say that. So you know, who, who's he talking about? Who specifically? But generally agree with what he's saying. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next three, four quarters. So if he's saying by the middle of next year, let's keep an eye on it. I mean, there also by the middle of the next year, there could be big changes in the US low cost and ultra low cost carrier ecosystem. If JetBlue snatches up Spirit or if JetBlue cannot snatch up Spirit, they're going to have to scramble to do something. So it could be a very different landscape six months, 12 months from now too. It certainly could. Speaking of different landscape, the boarding landscape at United is in fact changing. Whether this will make any difference or not, I don't know. But United's going to board window seats in economy first before middle seats 
and aisle seats. They'll go from, I think there's five boarding groups now to seven, the folks who need assistance, uniformed military personnel, and I want to say, what is it? Global services will still board first. And then you've got your first class passengers or business class passengers, depending on what kind of flying you're doing. And then it's the window people. And then the middle seat people. And then the aisle seat people. And this could save a few minutes per flight, hopefully, and maybe it'll work. Yeah. It's interesting. I just talked about this with a, a coworker a few hours ago who, who brought it up. It's probably a good idea in, in theory, in concept, but when push comes to shove, how many of United's passengers on, on busy routes have some sort of priority boarding, either through global services or their Star Alliance Gold, or you're like me and you pay nothing for the United credit card for a year, so you're defaulted into group two, along with everyone else on your reservation. Like It just seems like there's such a, a smaller percentage of people who will actually board in the order of window middle aisle that it probably won't save all that much time in the end, but it'll be an interesting experiment because if it saves them even 60 seconds on the average turn time, that adds up and that's significant. We have seen people run experiments in the past of what is the fastest way to board an aircraft. And I think we've come to the conclusion that Southwest's procedure of people get a boarding position and then just go on the plane and sit wherever you want to sit as long as the seat's open, that's as fast as it's going to get. But finally seeing an airline do something to make boarding faster, at least in the US. Interesting, nonetheless. I mean, I'm for dual door boarding. I mean, that's just me. door boarding, but as long as the US airlines penalize you for checking a bag and really not so much force everyone to have carry-on bags, but really make it the default action, boarding times are never going to be all that fast compared to the rest of the world because there are just so many more carry-on bags here than compared to anywhere else in the world. So maybe if we go back to the days where check bags are free on domestic flights, people will be more more apt to do that rather than hauling their bags on board. And then you know you get to the end of boarding when the gate agent says, oh, the next 60 passengers, there's no room on board for your bags. You're going to have to check them when really there's plenty of room on board. We've all been there. But it just seems like we're at the point where we have to make actual meaningful changes to what people do and don't do when they get on board the aircraft. Otherwise, we're never really going to see much of an improvement. Or we just all move to Japan and board a 777-300ER in like eight minutes flat. I will never not be impressed by how it's quickly something. the I Japanese airlines it. can board a domestic configuration 777. I mean, even when I went to Japan at a JFK earlier this year, we didn't even start boarding the 787-8 until like 10 minutes before scheduled departure time. And we pushed back like two minutes early. I mean, maybe it's just the expectation of it working. I mean, maybe like, hey, and, guys, and listen, we're, we're flying on a Japanese airline. You all have to act accordingly. Move it or lose it or we're going to leave you behind. Maybe. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. Okay. A couple more United things. Well, one more United thing and then wow, a- it's a lot a of United. Soon to be, well, tangentially related, but important enough. United's taken delivery of its first A321neo. That particular aircraft will go into service, I believe, in mid-December. The first flight is Chicago to Phoenix on the- 12th, 14th of December, something like that. And there are many more on the way, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And what is it? That's United's first Airbus delivery since like 2002, if you exclude ex-continental aircraft. Yeah, it's been a while. Nice. And then a future United Airlines 737, one day, 737-10, 
is currently being used by Boeing in its as part of its eco demonstrator project. And this is a SAF centric eco demonstration project where they are flying. They filled one of the tanks with regular jet fuel, one of the tanks with sustainable aviation fuel, and then they are flying NASA's DC-8 directly behind the aircraft to sniff the exhaust to see what the difference is. I guess there's still a lot of learning to be had here, but it feels like we've done enough of these that they should know. Right? I'm going to stop you there because you're lobbying against a DC-8 flying around in no, no, close no, proximity no. to a 737, and I, I, right. can, I won't stand for that. The more, <laughs> the better. So this has nothing to do with the science. You just want the cool plane. I mean, we talked about recently that NASA is going to be retiring this sniffing DC-8, right? I think. So yeah, let's keep it going as much All as right. we can. All right. Well, they're doing those flights. This is the same DC-8 that did the aroma tests recently, I believe. Okay. Well, hopefully it will continue to do that. They are flying through the end of October on this particular eco-demonstrator project. They're flying out of Seattle. So if you're in the Pacific Northwest, you've got a decent chance of catching one of those flights. If you're in the Seattle area, you've got a decent chance of seeing them flying together. Jason, let's head to Europe. Yes, and where they have like, realized too little like too this. late that maybe they should have stopped some of these airline mergers or, or asked for more concessions in the past before IAG, Lufthansa Group, and Air France KLM are the only games left in town. Yeah, there has been a lot of airline consolidation going on in Europe over the last decade or so. And a report from the Financial Times States that the regulators in Brussels want to tighten concession or seeking tougher concessions from airlines looking to merge in order to ensure fair compensation. Apparently, there's a new antitrust commissioner of the EU, and they have realized this far too late. Typically, what happens, at least in the EU, this is also the case in the US, the concessions, basically the only concessions that are had during airline mergers are the forfeiting of valuable airport slots. So something like Heathrow slots. We have seen mergers in the past where an airline has to give up some of its very valuable slots at Heathrow, which could be worth millions and millions of dollars. And then they go off to a new airline that may not already have access to Heathrow. But it turns out that's not really that big a deterrent to airline mergers that probably shouldn't have gone through or should have had more concessions or bigger, more expensive concessions from happening. Really learning this too little, too late, though maybe this comes into effect with the upcoming Air France, KLM, SAS, whatever was announced a couple weeks ago. That's only a minority stake. But if that goes up to a controlling stake, that might be the first, not airline merger, but airline integration. I don't know where there's more at stake than just a couple of slots that the airlines can kind of toss to the side. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting case because of the government involvement in SAS. But yeah, I mean, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, these are all good things to recognize, but when push comes to shove, are they really going to do anything? Yeah, I don't know. At least they've realized that slot divestitures are just not that effective. They are almost the cost of doing business of these mergers, but maybe if there's really well, something- It's the first thing that the airlines go, oh, we'll, we'll give away the slot. No problem. I mean, we've seen JetBlue doing that repeatedly yeah. and a number I mean, of times. And if it's, saying, not, if it's not a problem- then maybe that shouldn't be like the end all be all of if the airline is voluntarily and preemptively saying we're going to give up 
all of our slots at LaGuardia to make this merger go through. Maybe you should look at it and say, huh, you seem to want this a little too badly. What else can we get from you? There you go. Oh, I just don't know, Jason. What else can we get from you? I don't know. We should talk about 3D models of airplanes. How about We should. And that's exactly what we're going to do after the break. We're going to chat with Jason Rosewell, who is with Infinite Flight. And we're going to talk about a brand new feature that has come to FlightRadar24's app and website and how it got there. So stick with us. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. We are joined today by Jason Rosewell from Infinite Flight. He works in digital marketing and partnerships over there. And Jason and I have been working together for the last little bit on the launch of our new 3D view because if you've downloaded the app or if you visited the website and checked out the new 3D view already, you know that the brand new ultra-realistic models and the actual airline liveries that we're now displaying for many of those models are supplied by Infinite Flight. So Jason, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to go into what we've been working on together, and then we're going to chat about Infinite Flight a little bit more in depth, because I'm sure that there's no shortage of crossover between FlightRadar24 users and Infinite Flight users. But so for the past couple of months, we've been putting together a revamped 3D view in the apps and on the web. So it's fully out in the web now, if you go to flightradar24.com and then follow a flight and click on 3D, you'll see those new models and new liveries. If you have the app and you are an automatic updater, you should see version 9.12 for both iOS and Android. And if you are a manual updater, go ahead and manually update the app. It's still in phase rollout, but by the time the podcast comes out on Friday, it should be available to everyone. Jason, you guys have created these ultra-realistic models. You've got the liveries for most of those that are now kind of powering the new 3D view. And I've been a longtime Infinite Flight user as well. So I, I, I was really excited about making this happen and, and seeing those things come to the app and come to the site. So I just want to say how excited I am about all of this. And I know we've gotten a lot of great feedback from our users who just clicked on 3D and saw these new liveries and, and were like, wait a second, what happened? And we're really pleasantly surprised as we've kind of rolled things out. So this has been a, a really great thing. But let's talk about what Infinite Flight is on its own. What is Infinite Flight? And, and it's a flight simulator, but how is it different than some of the other flight simulators out there? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, I need to say that how excited I am also about this partnership because you know at Infinite Flight, we're Flight Radar 24 users as well. And now you get to share in all of the livery requests along with us. So <laughs> Absolutely. This is uh, even more of a, a partnership than you might have thought you were getting into. But <laughs> yeah, so Infinite Flight is a flight simulator specifically designed for mobile phones and tablets. We've been around since about 2012. And funny enough, it was actually first available on Windows Phone, which I can get into a little wow. bit later. But so obviously at some point, became available for iOS and Android. Windows Phone's not a thing anymore. So we offer features like, well, we're a flight simulator, so we offer aircraft. We have a few dozen aircraft now, and 
have almost, I think we're approaching our thousandth aircraft and livery combination. So there's a pretty wide variety out there, which obviously come in handy for you folks at Flight Radar 24 at this point. And in addition, as you're flying around, you can fly the entire world in 15 meter per pixel satellite terrain imagery. So the higher you go, sort of the nicer that terrain will look. We have human ATC using on-screen prompts and text-to-speech. And obviously, if you need multiplayer for human ATC, so we have a multiplayer system that allows pilots and air traffic controllers to be, I guess, if you will, in the same world. And we have a whole community of air traffic controllers that's led by my colleague, Tyler, who's a real-world controller. And so he's got about, I think it's close to 600 uh, what we call IFATC or Infinite Flight ATC members who control on what we call the expert server. So as you make your way up when you're first starting out in Infinite Flight on the multiplayer servers, you can gain lots of experience and then eventually be on the expert server where rules are enforced and that's where you find all of our IFATC controllers. So at any given time, we've got, I don't know what the exact number is, but there can be thousands of planes in the air in Infinite Flight all around the world. That to me is the fun of it, being able to like just jump into, you know, if I've got five minutes and I want to spend, you know, five minutes just practicing takeoffs and landings in a Mm -hmm. 747 or whatever. But then I can also set it for, okay, I want to, I'm going to fly across the country and I'll come back to it later and enjoy that. And for me, the thing that I enjoy the most is the different levels of seriousness because Mm -hmm. I found in some other places where, where it's like, you can only join if you're already like very, very serious about this. Yes. And to me, that, that's always been a turnoff. Like, okay, but I don't have 12 hours to actually fly across the world. But maybe I want to kind of participate in that. And so that's always been a, a fun thing for me. Agreed. And that's accessibility is something that we take pride in as well. And that's something that I'm in the same boat, right? Like I, I can multitask with infinite flight because I can have it sitting on my desk and I can work while I'm in cruise or whatever it is. But you know, you and I have kids and families and jobs and I can't really hole myself up in my office, you know, with a full flight sim set up. I mean I could, but just not very often. <laughs> you know, the accessibility is is one of the important things for us. Not to mention, you know, most people have a phone in their pocket or they have a, a tablet on their table or in their backpack. And as long as you have an internet connection, you can use infinite flight and you can use infinite flight with other people from wherever you are. And you mentioned, you know, people of different types of seriousness playing, and that's important too. Like I often describe if I'm at a trade show or something, I'm describing infinite flight as they say, well, what is it? It's like, well, some people use it as a game. Some people use it as something that they can have community with. You know, our, our community, which I'll talk about is vibrant and thriving and it has a lot of people in it. So it's somewhere you can, where you can easily find like-minded folks, not just to fly with, but to literally, we have people on voice channels on, on our server just hanging out. So that's important to us. And then we have people like me who I use it with my EFB and I actually use it to keep my head in the game as a pilot. So there's this whole spectrum of people who use infinite flight. And, you know, the the device is your yoke. So you don't need peripherals. You don't need a yoke. You don't need a joystick. You can do that, especially on Android. That's a lot easier. You can plug and play with a lot of things. iOS makes it 
trickier, of course, because Apple. But if you have a Bluetooth device like a PlayStation or an Xbox controller, you can still do that on iOS. But really, the magic is in the portability and the fact that the device is the yoke. So yeah, how is it different from other flight sims? I mean, I think our community, again, is something I'm going to keep going back to because you'll notice 3D airports popping up now in Infinite Flight with every release. We're putting out dozens, if not hundreds of new and updated 3D airports. That's something that's fairly new over the last couple of years. And that's our community building those. We have a scenery editing group of volunteers that just love to sit there and build their home airport. Laura built a in-app scenery editor. So they're there adding objects, everything from baggage carts to terminal buildings to cranes and fuel trucks, like just everything in between. So they're creating that and they're part of our community as well as our air traffic controllers and then our multitude of virtual airlines and organizations that, again, pop up because we're just part of this really nerdy group that loves airplanes. And, it, you know, you said you like to practice in a 777. I mean, that's, I don't practice in a 777, but that's <laughs> the beauty of it, right? And that's what most people go to. They first download the app and they want to fly out an A380 upside down, you know, over LAX. Sure, why not? And you can do that. Of course, Yeah. And lastly, about the community, I'll say that I came from the community. I joined AT IFATC way back in the day, around 2016, maybe, and sort of, you know, climbed the ranks there and got my radar approval. And I was able to control the approach and departure and eventually uh, center. And that was my infinite flight community. And then eventually, as you and I were talking about earlier, started Flightcast, which was a podcast about infinite flight, and then eventually joined the team. And we've got developers, community managers, all that came out of the community first. Yeah. That's one of the things that I really love about infinite flight, but aviation generally, is that the community is so big, but it's also very, very small. Absolutely. And so you end up sharing interests with people and getting to know them super well. And then things like this happen. So what are some of the, I mean, I could talk for a while, but I would like to hear it from you. What are some of the cool features of Infinite Flight that are kind of different from other flight sims? We talked about, you know, the live, the ATC involvement and some of the kind of crowdsource 3Ds. Is, is there anything else that if somebody goes, I'm going to go download Infinite Flight now, and you know, this is the like the first thing they should go check out. Yeah, well, I think I have to say it again. The community is head over to our forum. If you're going to start somewhere, go to community.infiniteflight.com and just ask people, hey, where do I start? They will love to tell you because, like we've said, everybody uses it a little bit differently. We love to leverage the power and that passion from the community to drive development and improve the sim. So I think that's something that I think is really important. Your, your voice can be heard. Our Discord server, you know, on our last update, I said, hey guys, how's the update going? What were your first impressions? What could we do better? And we had just hundreds of responses and we could gauge the temperature of that. But if you're going to download it and try something at first, I would say if you subscribe and you check out our multiplayer... I think that's where the real fun is. You also have access to all of our aircraft. If you download the sim for free, which you can do in the App Store or Google Play, you do get a selection of aircraft like most simulators would give you. And you can fly around in a certain number of regions. But 
really the multiplayer and being able to fly at your home airport and things like that. That's the really cool defining feature for me. And speaking of multiplayer, you know, we were one of the first mass market mobile multiplayer sims and it was available on your phone. And we were one of the first flight sims to offer global through streaming, you know, before another certain flight sim showed up on the desktop market and said they were the first to do it. (laughs) I'll just let you use your imagination there. But this is something that we've been doing on mobile for years now. So the portability, the fact that you can practice or play anywhere. And in fact, when I say practice, we also have, this is one of my favorite features. We have a connection to ForeFlight or Garmin Pilot and a handful of other EFBs that you might be familiar with. So all you have to do is enable the EFB link and settings and then be on the same Wi-Fi network as your ForeFlight or your Garmin Pilot device. And then Infinite Flight shows up as a device would in those apps. So in other words, if you have a Sentry for ForeFlight, Infinite Flight shows up and does the same thing. So you can, you know, let's say you're new to ForeFlight or Garmin Pilot, or you you want to learn how to use one of these new features that they've put out. You know, I think sometimes in your cockpit, burning Avgas or Jet A is probably the worst time that you can learn a new EFB feature especially if you're counting on those features to keep you safe. So if you can learn and be proficient with your EFB while you're sitting at your desk or on your couch, kind of takes that couch flying to a new level. And those EFBs do have simulators that you can enable so you can have the airplane moving by itself. But, you know, it's just not as fun that way. I think the favorite thing that I've ever seen someone do as far as the EFB integration is, I forget who this was, but somebody posted on Twitter maybe a year ago or so, they were flying a commercial flight, just sitting mm-hmm. in their seat, and yep. they had infinite flight and four flight pulled up and just was, they were flying whatever flight they were on. Yep. And I'm sure they're not the first person to do it, and I'm sure it happens more often than people posting on Twitter would have me believe. But I just thought that was a hilarious thing to do, especially if you're sitting next to someone who's like, wait, what is happening? Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's kind of this along the same lines as bringing your sentry on board an airliner and sticking it on the window and then using ForeFlight to check the turbulence and stuff that you're, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's nerd level 100. So absolutely. And, and I've, Ian, I've done it. I've been on the airplane waiting for pushback and I've opened up my camera on my phone and then infinite flight and tried to get the exact same shot out the window in infinite flight that I have in real life. And it's like, what am I doing? But it's great you're sitting there anyway. And they're, they're rummaging around adjusting the cargo. So you're pushing back 45 minutes late. Why not? <laughs> so what's coming up next? I mean, I know the big question in my mind personally, but also professionally, now that we're enjoying the fruits of Infinite Flight's model and livery labor, is mm-hmm. is what's coming up next? Well, along those lines, we are redeveloping the A380. It's an older model right now, so we don't have an animated cockpit. That was before we started animating cockpits. So our 3D artists and developers are starting from scratch and redeveloping the A380, which is very exciting for, I would say, just over half of our community. The other half is eagerly waiting until we do the 747. Fair enough. So yeah, so I'll save my opinion for another time. But the A380 coming is is super exciting. 
We also, and this is something that I'm really proud of and excited to announce, we're partnering with Sporty's Pilot Shop on something that we think is going to really help aspiring pilots and even just av geeks in general. I can't, unfortunately, spill the beans with you, Ian, right now, but we're getting closer to rolling it out later this year, hopefully, or very early next year with the Sporties guys. And I couldn't be more excited. I think it's going to be awesome. I love a good stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. And maybe I can come back and share it with you later. I think that would be fantastic. So Infinite Flight has built these ultra realistic models that you can actually fly in Infinite Flight. But if you just want to watch them in the air in real flights, you can now do all of that on Flight Radar 24. And we're so excited that this partnership came together and that you can click on an airplane now in Flight Radar 24 in the apps and on the website, press the 3D button and you'll see the actual airplane with the actual livery for a vast majority of the major airlines. We've been chatting with Jason Rosewell, who's in digital marketing and partnerships at Infinite Flight. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ian. Welcome back. And Jason, just in time for Halloween, a terrifying new machine has been certified by Chinese aviation authorities. Oh, this thing. It's the globally first, I think, e-passenger carrying e-VTOL aircraft, or at least self-piloting e-VTOL aircraft. And you say terrifying, but you didn't explain why. I was going to let you do that because you've done it so well in the past. I will do that. But basically, a lot of the eVTOL aircraft have either some sort of wings with traditional forward-facing rotors, or maybe there's like the Volocopter, I think, has almost like a gantry of rotors above the passenger cabin. No, the Ehang, I guess it's pronounced, has a bunch of rotors that are just stuck out from pylons that surround the passenger cabin of the aircraft. And I'm looking at this thing thinking, how the hell was this certified when I'm looking at it and I can't think of a way I would be able to escape from this aircraft if perhaps I was on the ground and there was some sort of issue with the automated thing and the rotors didn't turn off. And that is not an unthinkable circumstance. We've seen that happen before. I think QF32, was it? The A380 where they had one of the engines kind of yeah. explode. Yeah, the, the number one engine wouldn't shut down. It wouldn't turn off. They had, it even, ran even for if, hours. Like, say there's a fire in the cabin and you have to get out immediately and you can't, you know, push all of the buttons to shut down the rotors and think like, or the buttons don't work. I mean, software software is software and software can break down. And if you push the button that says turn off and it doesn't turn off, I guess you'll just have to sit there and wait for the batteries to die. I don't know. Maybe we're getting this wrong. Maybe the images and videos we've seen don't tell the full story. Maybe there is room to sneak between the rotors, but at the RPM, these things are spinning. I wouldn't want to go anywhere near it because again, it's an automated aircraft. So if you're in the proximity of it and the software is not working properly, there's nothing stopping it from doing things like taking off or rotating or doing something. How is this the first eVTOL that gets certified? I don't get it. It's the world's most frightening lawnmower is really what it is. And I'm looking at it going, this thing is 
Also, how do you safely get in? Somebody like trying to get into this thing, somebody's going to whack one of those propellers with their shins. I don't get it. There's a lot going on here. Where I, I really just don't, don't I mean, understand it. We don't want to doubt the Chinese certification process because we've no, no, talked no. about I'm it sure, I'm sure it, it flies the, well. I'm sure I'm it's sure. perfectly adequate. Yes, but, but I have also heard that there is some sort of ingress, egress procedure they have to do to get the aircraft certified, but that might not be the case for the eVTOL. I don't know because I just one look at this thing and it's just a big old nope for me. Nope, nope, nope. Like I'm looking at photographs right now and I'll put a, a link to a couple of them in the show notes. I just, I don't see how this is something that I would ever consider getting in. Nope. Not anytime soon at least. On the other hand, I would consider getting on an Air India Express 737 MAX because they look fantastic. Yeah. Didn't see this coming, especially not an entire like unveiling ceremony completely separate from the already happened Air India livery and brand reveal. Air India Express, they seem to be doubling down on, hey, we're our own thing with our own livery and our own airplanes, and it looks pretty damn good. Yeah, I really like it. I like what they've done with it. The announcement of what they're planning on doing with the airline, doubling the fleet and then going up to 170 aircraft. So doubling from what they've got now and then going up to 170 aircraft over the next few years. I mean, some really strong growth potential here, which makes sense because a lot of the other Indian airlines that are flying domestically or short international hops have failed recently. So good for them. A nice rebranding, I think. I really like the tail. It kind of leans into the same motif that the Air India proper tail was going for. So I think it fits in nicely. You can definitely tell that, you know, there's Air India and then there's this is also Air India, but it's a different airline, but it's the same airline. So I think they did that well, where sometimes you get the branding between two airlines that are supposedly operating together. It's either the same branding and it's just one airline to people's minds, or it's completely different. You're like, I don't understand how these two are related. So in this particular case, I think they did a very nice job. Yeah. Also in airline branding news, the airline (laughs) formerly known as Avianca- I tried to keep it together. Avianca. Did you know that? Did you catch that? Did you you catch the difference there? Avianca is now Avianca. I... Okay. Why? So Avianca went through tough times during COVID, went through bankruptcy. They have recently emerged from bankruptcy and felt, how should we spend our newfound financial solvency, our newfound financial foothold, I guess. And they thought, let's rebrand, but not really rebrand. Let's swap our capital A in Avianca for a lowercase A of course. in Avianca, because of course. In quoting Avianca, <laughs> the airline announced branding last night calling the new lowercase A, quote, a symbol of a company that ceased to be for a few to become a company where the sky belongs to everyone. So they are leaning exceptionally heavy in the shift from a full-service airline to a low-cost airline, being that the sky belongs to everyone, quote. I don't really know about shifting from a capital A to a lowercase a. That part kind of eludes me. But (laughs) This is like the branding brief to whatever marketing agency they use. They were like, look, we have no money, but we need to make it look different. What's the easiest way to do that? And they probably spent like a million dollars for that marketing agency to go, 
What if you changed it to a lowercase a? Promote that man. (laughs) The release goes on, and I'm quoting here, after 104 years of operation, being the second oldest airline in the world, Avianca bid farewell to the uppercase A and welcomed the lowercase A as a symbol of a company that, by combining the best of its over 100 years of flying with the practicality and flexibility of a modern low-cost world, has ceased to be for a few and is now for everyone. I did not know that uppercase letters were only for the few, the rich, the bold, whereas the lowercase is for everyone, Ian. Okay. Okay. Uh, they <laughs> go on to say this is perhaps the greatest reinvention of an airline in the history of aviation. No, 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 no. No, they didn't. They did? They did? No. This is a quote from their CEO, Adrian Newhauser. He got me finished a quote. This Please. is perhaps the greatest reinvention of an airline in the history of aviation. That's why today we say hello to Avianca, in lowercase, and goodbye to the uppercase A of the past. This is a brand that honors our history and at the same time represents what we are today, a renewed Avianca, friendly, agile, accessible, attentive, and cheerful. An Avianca that looks you in the eye and calls you by your name. An Avianca where everyone is welcome. I'm sorry. I, I you can't, can't even get through it. I you can't, can't even complete get through the it. sentence without laughing. An Avianca where everyone is welcome and where the sky belongs to all. Now, I get the sentiment of the end that they are shifting to a low-cost model, which should theoretically be more affordable to a larger percentage of the population, but they are really forcing this change from uppercase to lowercase. I don't know. I mean, but they're, you they're know doing what? a lot of things. Oh, they're doing a lot that. of things and good on whatever marketing person wrote all that and somehow convinced an airline the CEO to put their name on th- that quote that is what that's what that quote should be. So good on them. I didn't even get the whole quote. We knew that our airline was at risk of disappearing, as was the connectivity of the countries and regions where we operated and the jobs we generated. But it was also during that time that we saw it was not only possible but also necessary to achieve a different Avianca, one that's more open, closer, more accessible. So there's a lot of truth there. There's a lot of good. Yeah, no, that no, no, sure. Avianca was an airline that needs to exist but was in trouble. But yeah, the whole uppercase versus lowercase thing, just, I don't know. That, I mean, delivery doesn't I, I even look any different. They are literally just swapping out the A for a different A. Right. Okay. Okay. Do you want to hear a story that's kind of slightly more ridiculous, I think? I do. Because I, do. I think I don't we can only if, go up I don't that. know if you're going to get a quote more ridiculous I, than no, that. No, I don't but, think there's uh, a quote the more ridiculous. The story itself is story. priceless. So this, and... <laughs> I love starting a story with, this is not the first time this has happened. (laughs) But recently, Japan Airlines was forced to add an extra flight because they were transporting sumo wrestlers and they were concerned that the aircraft would not be able to operate due to the weight of the passengers. Huh. So they were flying from Tokyo. And Osaka. It was two groups flying from Tokyo and Osaka to Amami Oshima, which is an island in the very, 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 very south of Japan for a sport festival, sumo wrestling festival. And because the airport at the destination is not large, what would you know kind of make sense to all of us is just just upgauge the plane and then you don't have to worry about weight and balance as much. 
was not in the offing. So what they ended up doing was flying some of the group from Osaka to Tokyo and then putting them on a separate 737 so that all of the wrestlers could make it. So it was 27 wrestlers in total and 14 of them had to fly on a special flight from Osaka to Tokyo to then get on a normal scheduled flight out of Tokyo. The the JAL spokesperson said, quoted in The Guardian, but speaking to a regional Japanese newspaper, it is extremely unusual for us to operate special flights due to the weight restrictions on this aircraft. But when you've got sumo wrestlers weighing a lot more than normal passengers, it becomes an issue. I mean, and it's funny because as you said before, that this has happened before, the link from The Guardian goes all the way back to a Telegraph article from July 30th, 2014, where this has happened before, but instead of a 737-800, it was what looks to be a CRJ of some type, maybe a CRJ-900. I'm not really sure. The picture's cropped in really tight, but the image of these sumo wrestlers crammed into what is clearly an aircraft way too small for their particular build is just absolutely hilarious. I can't believe this has happened before and it's happened again. And I can guarantee, though, it'll happen again. There you go. But what is interesting, though, is that how did they come to the conclusion that the aircraft would have been overweight? Because the industry has standards for passenger weight that are wildly outdated and inaccurate. But every passenger, every adult, every child, every piece of baggage typically has its own assumed weight, which is not really representative of the real world, but I wonder if they actually weighed the super wrestlers on board and determined, or they just look at them and go, no, no, this isn't going to work. It sounds like they just kind of looked at them, knowing that with a group that large, the average weight was so much more. Jal says they use a 70 kilogram average for passengers, and the average weight of this particular group was 120 kilograms. So that's a big difference. And so they said, yeah, you know what? We'll get you a new plane. Yeah. And that's the standard measurement for a passenger on board. That 70 kilograms works out to about 155-ish pounds per passenger. And that's just the calculation that's used, I believe, industry-wide for all passengers. Whether you're 98 pounds or, or 300 pounds, it all I guess, averages out in the end. Because you out. know as well as I do that when you get to the airport, you are not weighed at any point. Unless you're on a really small prop aircraft maybe. It does happen, but in, not typically for like a 737-800. But And there's always Get on the, doll crew. the stories that float around about, oh, this airline's going to start weighing people and Yeah, and not, like not going to happen. But good on Jal's crew for realizing a problem before it became an actual problem. Yeah. And finding an available aircraft to get them where they needed to go. So in this case, you find an aircraft and you make it happen. <laughs> you don't want to make a, a group of a dozen sumo wrestlers upset with you. And so that's what they did. And they got to where they needed to go, and all's well that ends well. And this ends episode 238 of AvTalk. If you've enjoyed this episode, and I know I have, why don't you head to wherever you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating or a review. Tell us what you liked, tell us what you didn't like, and that helps other people find the podcast as well. And they get to hear about sumo wrestlers and assorted interesting aviation information. So yeah, we appreciate it very much. And thank you for listening. This has been episode 238 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. 